0: We are beginning a new sermon series entitled, The Gospel According to Leviticus. Now, our congregation is 30 years old, and I am almost certain that for the entirety of its existence, uh, we have never had a sermon series on Leviticus. And I can probably safely guess that most, if not all of you, have never really done an extended, in-depth look. On Leviticus. Now, it's understandable. Uh, Leviticus is not a popular book for Christians. It's a book that's easily misunderstood, especially when taken out of context. And because of that, Leviticus is a terrible book to quote. For instance, Leviticus 11, 7 to 8, says this, if we can look, and the pig is unclean to you. You shall not eat any of their flesh." Boo, right? (laughs) Saying we can't eat pork. Well, if if you aren't a vegetarian, then it's boo, right? Uh, Leviticus uh, is telling uh, the Israelites that they can't eat pig. Leviticus uh, is also known as the Bible reading plan stopper. Do you know what that means? A new year begins, you get all excited about reading the Bible, And then you get to Leviticus, and then you stop, and then you wait till next year and start all over again. It's that perfect linebacker. Nothing can get through it. No one. You know, all of this is understandable. Uh, Leviticus is ritualistic. It is repetitive. It's contractual. It's overly detailed. Leviticus is a tough read. So the question is, why are we doing this study? Well, of all the Old Testament books, there are four that are crucial for our understanding of the gospel. And those four books are Genesis, Psalms, Isaiah, and the fourth is Leviticus. Without Leviticus, the gospel story actually doesn't make any sense. Without Leviticus... Jesus' incarnation and sacrifice doesn't add up. And I propose that if we, for a moment, get out of the details and the legalities of Leviticus, and if we take a look at the big picture, we will see that Leviticus is answering a fundamental and necessary question for all of humanity. Leviticus is answering this question. Next slide. How can humans have fellowship with God? Leviticus is actually about how sinful men, sinful women can have meaningful, real fellowship with a holy, holy God. You see, through Leviticus, God is offering a way for his people to be near him. So, uh, for our first week, before we get into the meat of this book, um, we have to first trace the steps of this biblical story. Uh, we have to know how the Bible actually gets to this point because Leviticus is part three of a five part series and so I, I just want to let you know that today um, today 's sermon is actually going to sound more like a, uh, a Bible study it 'll feel like a survey uh, of backgrounds, but I promise you that if you follow to the end, uh, there is going to be a payoff. So, it all begins in Genesis, Genesis 1. Uh, Those of you familiar with the Bible's opening chapter will know that God creates the world in six days. Day one, God creates light. Day two, God creates the sky and water. Day three, land and vegetation. Day four, the sun, moon, and stars. Day five, the birds and fish. And day six, animals, and humans. Now, if you just take a look at this, the first chapter of the Bible, you'll see that the way in which God creates the world is not arbitrary. It's not random. But there is a goal and a purpose behind what God is doing. If you look at this chart and you see it in columns, you'll see that days one, two, and three Actually, align thematically with days four, five, and six. So, day one, God creates light, but in day four, God creates the sun, moon, and stars. Day two, God creates the sky and water, and then day five, God creates the birds and fish who are in the water and the skies. Day three, God creates land and vegetation, but on day six, um, day three, he creates land and vegetation, and day six, God creates animals and humans. You see, we see that what God is doing, in a sense, in days one, two, and three, God, He's is creating space, or habitats, or to use royal language, God is creating kingdoms. And in day four, five, and six, he's creating kings, inhabitants, People who can govern and rule over that space. Now, we see that what God is doing, it seems like there is intention and and purpose behind what God is doing. And if you get to day six, which is the pinnacle of creation, God creates man in his own image. He creates man in his own image. He places him in the Garden of Eden. and And he tells man, rule over all of this. This is yours. So in a sense, God is saying to man, you are king over everything. Now, for those of you who know, the story doesn't end here. There's a seventh day. And the seventh day is a Sabbath. It's on this day that God, the creator king, he enters into his rest and what we get here is a picture of all of creation as God is finished working. He enters into his rest, and all of creation comes before him and worships him. You see, Genesis 1 and 2 tells us that the goal of creation, the end of creation, the telos of creation, is worship. Worship. God created this world. He created mankind for the purpose of worship. In other words, he created us so that we can have fellowship with him, so that we can be in his presence. Now, I know that this might sound strange to some of you, especially if you consider the fact that for Christians, cosmology has a purpose, and that purpose is fellowship with an intimate God. I know it sounds strange from a very scientific perspective that the reason why this world exists is because a creator God wants to have a relationship with us. But if you consider this in the context of childbearing, it actually starts to make sense, right? When a married couple, when they have children, why do they have children? It's so that these two people can now share their lives intimately, deeply, sacrificially with their children. Right? Uh, you know, parents have children uh, not just to procreate and just give life to this being and then leave that child off on his or her own. No, parents, married couples, have children so that everything you have and enjoy, you can give to your children who are made in your image. It's so that you can have an intimate relationship with what you created. You want to share everything that you have with your child. And this is exactly what God is doing. God created us so that he can give us everything, that we can be in his presence, that we can enjoy him, that we can worship him, that we can have fellowship with him. This is why God created the world. But what happens? Well, Genesis 3 happens. And for those of you who know, in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve, they sin, and as a result, they are removed from the garden of Eden. They are banished from God's presence. This fellowship that they had is now cut off. And the rest of Genesis is actually about God looking to recover what was lost. First, he chooses a person, Abraham. And through Abraham, God's goal is to bring humanity back into his presence. He's trying to bring a people back to worship him so that they can fulfill the purpose of their existence. Now, turn the page through Exodus. In Exodus, we find that Abraham's descendants, they've multiplied, they've become a nation, but they are slaves to another king, Pharaoh of Egypt. This is what it says in Exodus one thirteen: They ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. And so God, he calls Moses, and through Moses, he rescues his people. And this is what God says to Pharaoh in Exodus 4. Israel is my firstborn son. Let my son go, that he may serve or worship me. You know, in Exodus, there's an interesting wordplay that goes on throughout the book, and that is the word that's used for slavery and the word that's used for worship is the same word. I know it doesn't sound right, but it actually is. Whenever Exodus talks about work in the context of slavery, It's the same word that's used for service and worship in Exodus. And this is deliberate. God is saying the people who worked as slaves to Pharaoh will now worship their creator God. And, you know, interestingly, you know, the Bible actually says idolatry, right? Your slavery to your idols is... it's almost a mirror reflection of what true worship and service to the living God is supposed to look like. So, the story goes on. God leads the people out of slavery, and he brings them into the wilderness. They arrive at this mountain called Sinai, and God, he gives to his people instructions on the building of a tent. Now, you might be wondering, why does God want um, people to build this seemingly arbitrary tent? Well, there are two reasons. The first reason is so that God can dwell with his people. In Exodus 25, 8, it says this, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. So, the reason why God says make this tent is so that he can dwell with his people. Remember Eden? Remember the reason why God made the world? And the second reason is in Exodus twenty-five, twenty-two. he says this, there I will meet with you. So this tent, or this tabernacle, is both God's dwelling place, and it's also a place of meeting, right? It's where God exists, and it's the place where God meets with man. If you think about this in the context of everything that we've went over, Genesis and Exodus, you can see that what God is doing is he's trying to recover what was lost. He wants to dwell with this people again. He wants to meet with them again. He wants to have fellowship with them again. And so the Israelites, they build this temple or this tabernacle According to the details. And what we and what happens is found in today's passage, Exodus forty, thirty-four. It says this the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. God actually comes down. He comes down into this place, this tent, and he fills it. You know, this is actually the first time since the Garden of Eden that God is now able to be present with his people for a sustained period. But God wants to be with his people. And so he creates this tent. But there is one problem. Exodus 40, 35, it says this. Even though God dwelt in this tent, Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting. The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Exodus forty thirty five, the passage that we've read, tells us that God's glory was so great that no one could enter, not even Moses. God can dwell with his people, but they can't meet with him. They can't meet with him because of their sins. You know, there's a hint of irony here. This tent is called the tent of meeting, but no one can actually go in. You can't meet. And so, Leviticus happens. Leviticus. Leviticus 1-1. God called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, God is inside this tent. He dwells there. And he calls from this tent. And he says, Moses, this is how my people can be cleansed of their sins. This is how they can be cleansed of their sins. This is how they can come in and once again meet with me. I know for those of you who've read Leviticus, the book might seem to be complicated. It might seem to be arduous and at times oppressive. But these are laws that God gives to his people so that when we enter into his presence... So that when they enter into his presence, they wouldn't be struck down immediately because of their sins and the greatness of God's glory. But instead, having been purified, they can once again, like Adam and Eve, enter into the presence of God and enjoy fellowship, worship him, and be in his presence, be near to him once again. You know what's really cool about this, all of this? If you go to the very next book, which is Numbers 1-1, this is how it begins. The Lord spoke to Moses in the tent of meeting. Do you see the slight difference? Leviticus 1-1, God calls to Moses from the tent. God is inside the tent. Moses is outside the tent. After all of Leviticus happens, Numbers 1-1, God speaks to Moses where? Not from the tent, but in the tent. Moses is now inside. The people can now go inside. Leviticus worked. This wearisome book worked. The people can meet with God again. They can worship God again. They can be in His presence again. Um, For Leviticus, I'm actually going to stop here today, and let me just close by answering a few important questions. Um, The title of this series is The Gospel According to Leviticus. And so some of you might be thinking, well, what does all of this have to do with the gospel? Well, if you read on, This tent, this tabernacle and God's plan to meet with his people, while it worked for a little while, it ultimately fails. Just like Eden. It's not because of God, but it's actually because the people fail to follow Leviticus. And so they fail. They no longer meet with God. But God comes up with another plan, a similar one, and that is the temple. And at first, just like the tabernacle and just like Eden, it worked. God dwelled in the temple, and his people were able to meet with him there. But that failed as well. No matter how detailed and exact God's instructions were, the people were not able to rid themselves of their sin. So the temple no longer functioned as a meeting place. It was no longer God's dwelling place. One of the most saddest scenes in the Old Testament is found in Ezekiel, Ezekiel 10. And there, the glory of the Lord that filled the temple actually leaves. God no longer dwells there. And this temple becomes a purposeless building. And just as in the time of Exodus, the people, they stop worshiping God and they become slaves to their idols. So the people failed over and over again. But this time, God comes up with a foolproof plan. One that even the sins of mankind cannot spoil. Instead of a tent or a temple where God can dwell in, God decides to send his son. His son who was the very nature God. And he sends his son and he tells him, and, he, and he calls him to put on flesh. And the Bible tells us that when Jesus came, that he dwelt with us. John 1.14 is a well-known passage. But I want you to read it through the lens of everything we talked about, Leviticus. It says this, The word became flesh, and he dwelt, he tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Remember, Leviticus is about a tent, and the purpose of this tent is so that God can dwell and that we can meet with him there. But what does John 1.14 tell us? That the Son of Man put on flesh and he dwelt with us, and we have seen his glory. We have met him. We have met with God through Jesus. Friends, God's unassailable plan to dwell among us and to meet with us was not some building or tent, but it was actually his son, Jesus. And because we couldn't follow all the laws and rites for purification, Jesus himself becomes that perfect sin offering for us Jesus becomes that perfect priest for us. He becomes that perfect peace offering for us. He becomes that perfect sacrifice for us. And Jesus lives that perfect life for us. As we will see in the weeks to come, everything in Leviticus that was required of us to do before we met with God, everything we had to do before we can enjoy God and be in his presence, was satisfied fully in Jesus. Do you see now why the gospel without Leviticus is impoverished? When we consider Leviticus and everything that Jesus done, everything that he has done for us, it starts to make sense, right? Why was Jesus called the Lamb of God? Well, it was because he was that sacrifice for sin that Leviticus requires. Why did Jesus have to live a perfect life? Well, because the sacrifices offered to God had to be perfect without blemish. Why did the temple curtain tear in half when Jesus died on the cross? It's because in and through the death of Jesus, we can now be in God's presence here and in heaven. See, everything that Jesus does in his life, his ministry, his death, and resurrection is for the fulfillment of God's law here in Leviticus. Everything we were unable to do, God does in his son so that we can meet with him again. So then the question we have to ask is, what does this mean for us, you and I? Well, let me just point out three things. Um, If you consider all of this, everything that we've talked about, you will see that now worship to God, fellowship with God, isn't just a needless action that you choose to do whenever you feel like it. No. The Bible tells us that worship, fellowship with God, being in His presence is the very fulfillment of your existence. In other words, God created you for the purpose of worship. And when we worship, we are fulfilling the reason why God created us. You see, we're like a flower. If we're not in the presence of God, i.e. the sun, we will wither. And so, I think there might have, you know, we might have to do a bit of paradigm shifting. Because I know that a lot of Christians today, they see worship as a means to an end. Right? People worship because they want to gain inspiration. People worship because they want to draw strength to go out and live their life goals. Right? People worship because they want to feel inspired so that they can carry out their responsibilities. No, friends, no. God is not a pit stop. Worship isn't a means to another end. The Bible tells us worship is an end in itself. When we worship, when we draw near to God, we are fulfilling the purpose of our existence. And for those of you who feel lost maybe living, feeling as though you're living your life without purpose. Friends, your soul will always be restless until you find your calling in life, in worship. Until you realize that the reason why I exist is to be near God, is for fellowship with God. You will always be lost. The second thing, second thing that we can draw from this is this. Um, When you consider Leviticus and the gospel and everything that we've talked about, we see God's relentless pursuit for us. You know, God could have gave up the first time. He could have gave up in Genesis when Adam and Eve sinned. He could have gave up in Exodus when the people sinned, worshiping the golden calf. He could have gave up in Leviticus when the priests start to sin. He could have gave up in Numbers when the people went astray. He could have gave up in Deuteronomy and all throughout. He could have gave up, but he doesn't. He doesn't. He doesn't give up because God created us to be in fellowship with him, and nothing that we do, not even our sins, can thwart God's plan. He relentlessly pursues us. Now, some of you might be here thinking, I've gone too far. You might be thinking, I've sinned too deep. I've strayed too far. No, friends. No distance is too long. No gulf go- no is too deep. And no sin is too tragic for God to give up on you. Amen. He created us so that we can be in His presence. And even our sins and our waywardness cannot prevent that. The third point that we can draw upon practically is this, with respect to our worship. You know, because Leviticus, you know, just because Leviticus doesn't apply to us doesn't mean that we can come now casually to worship. Christian worship should never characterized by casualness or carelessness. Instead, our worship should be defined by full dependency and complete confidence in Jesus. For those of you who think, you know what, I don't have to do all of these things, you know, great, I can just come. A casual spirit is not the Christian worship. Come to worship. Enjoy fellowship with God. Be in his presence here and throughout the week with the spirit of complete confidence in Jesus. And when you do so, you meet with God all the time. You have full access, straight access, into the presence of God. Let me just end uh, by sharing the story Um, This week at my children's school was uh, career day. We had a career day. And my children are still uh, proud of me. They're at that age where they're uh, still proud of their father. And they asked, both of them asked, Dad, can you come to career day and share what you do? And at first, I was going to say no, but I thought, oh, man, we're doing this series, Beautiful Feet. That's the theme, right? We've got to go and evangelize. And I thought, oh, gosh, I've got to go. So I said, I'll go. And I went to the kids' sco- uh, their school and each of their classes. And uh, I started to share. I first told them, uh, my job is, I- I'm a pastor. Uh, more technically, according to the IRS, I'm a clergy. <laughs> and... I told them, I love my job. I love my job. And I'm not being sarcastic. I love my job. I told them, it's a great job. And so I got into sharing my main responsibility. What, what is my main responsibility? What does a pastor do? And I told them, my main responsibility is to teach people, guide people, how they can be in a personal relationship with God. So I started to ask, do any of you know who God is? And almost every kid raised their hand. They all knew God. Now, I, I know that some of them were Christian, but some of them weren't. So I started to ask, oh, so how do you know God? What kind of relationship do you have with God? And you know, I can tell these kids are asking, they're, they're saying, you know what? Some, some kids said, I talk to God. They say, um, I pray to God. Some say, you know, God is always with me. And so I asked, oh, have you ever been to church before? Or, you know, what do you do? And they don't. Um, They're not a Christian. And it seemed like for for most children, at least in in the suburbs of uh, Pennsylvania where where the school's at, the, the children, they had this modern conception of God as someone who's nice and kind and always welcoming, who's always there for you. Now, all of that is true, but absent of Jesus, the Bible actually tells us God's presence is a real scary thing. That we just can't be near God because he's holy. And, you know, these kids are, ask, are answering, you know, yeah, God is always with me. And, you know, I, I pray to God and, you know, so and so forth. And, you know, this one kid, funny, you know, I, I told him, you know, this week was a tough week because, you know, there was a funeral. And, uh, you know, I had to, you know, my job is also to comfort people and to help people through that. And this kid raised his hand, and he said, oh, was it Kobe Bryant's funeral? <laughs> I said, no, no, uh, that would have been something. But, you know, the, the kids are just asking all these questions and saying, you know, that how they know God, how they're near to God. And, uh, you know, I wanted to tell uh, the children, you know, cute Connor, I wanted to say, hey, Connor, you just can't have a relationship with God. And, you know, I really wanted to say, hey, you need to read Leviticus. (laughs) You need to read this book. But I I just ended up saying, you know, friends, children, the only way to have a relationship with God is through Jesus. He is like that good friend who can introduce you to God. He's like that good friend who can mediate between you and God. Jesus is the best way to know God. But if you don't have Jesus, God's hard to get to know. Now, for those of you who are, you know, are a public school teacher, I might have violated some laws about religious freedom, and I apologize, please don't report me. But (laughs) what I'm saying is, what I'm trying to say is, you know, you might not understand um, the Old Testament. And maybe... Everything I shared today, you might have missed. But I just want to end by saying you know, if you want to be in God's presence, if you want to have fellowship with God today, tomorrow, and forever, there's only one way, and that's Jesus. Leviticus tells us how difficult it is for sinful man to be in the presence of God. But the gospel tells us that that difficulty was satisfied and fulfilled in the work and person of Jesus. And so we can now be in his presence, always in full confidence. Praise his name. Join me in prayer at this time.